welcome to On The Dresser, your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. I'm Lauren Kiley. I'm Danny Cruz. I'm Vanessa Carlisle. Our discussions come from the perspectives of queer sex workers and sex educators. We like to call our special brand of knowledge, Edutitillation. <laughs> Even better with three people, it's right? Really yeah. Good. <laughs> All right. We're going to have an episode today all about the blood. The period blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're talking with uh, Nama Bloom, the author of Hello Flow, The Guide, period. If you are in contact with or ever were uh, an adolescent girl, you may know that first period especially can be a very stressful thing. Nama Bloom has put together a book, uh, it's called The Puberty Book for the Modern Girl. Um, It's really a wonderful book, and she's got a pretty radical philosophy behind what she's trying to do. So I got to sit down and chat with her. So there's an interview with Nama Bloom about Hello Flow, the guide period, coming up. We also have a couple of headlines to start with. Lauren? Well, this past weekend, we had the second National Women's March, but what's really cool is there were contingents of sex workers specifically, as well as contingents of gender nonconforming, trans, non-binary people in a whole bunch of major cities. Notably, we had Chris Sardina as a speaker in the Women's March in Las Vegas. Yeah, the National Women's March was fantastic because for the first time on a national stage, we had the phrase sex work is work, like broadcast to millions of people. Uh, So here's a, a clip from that and Chris Sardina's speech. Our gaze from envisioning a rights-based world where equality, 
equals reality. These teachings are deeply ingrained in the fabric of our her stories, and we cannot escape them. But now we stand in a time place of history where we must unlearn these belief systems. Because if we pretend the hierarchy does not exist within us, we continue to divide and separate and silence one another. We will continue to center the selective few to the battle cry of Me Too and Time's Up and all women, and it becomes a moot point to those this very space loudly quiets down. Our responsibilities are great to one another, and we must ask ourselves the hard question of what has been accomplished and tying the knots if we continue to hold on tightly to the rope. I want you to see us the sex worker rights movement as part of the solution and not the problem. We are a strong and fierce community made up of every color, every race, every identity, every shape, every economy, every religion, and so much more. Sex workers have been to the United Nations, we've been to the White House, maybe not this term. We're currently in the Ninth Circuit fighting for full decriminalization. We've been, we've been given national and global audiences and we get it done. When we literally lay down our bodies to be arrested on the Senate floor for health care, when criminalization still affects people who are living with HIV and AIDS, when the courts continuously hammer down on reproductive rights, health, and justice, when raped women still stand on the he said, she said platform, when accessible childcare is still absent, when trans voices are screaming to stop killing them, when women still pay the price of being a wife and mother versus a thriving career, when sex is criminalized in the legal and moral courts, when families become homeless because their paychecks cannot meet the rising cost of gentrification, when women still take home less pay than men, when children go hungry in the most developed nation in the world, when people of color are incarcerated in the United States at percentages that far exceed any global percentages of incarceration, when blood for oil destroys native lands, when cities and waters are poisoned and undrinkable, when groups of people are deported for dreaming, when the government is brutally attacking everything we have fought for, on the front lines, you will be standing right next to a sex worker. This is my truth as I live it, and I no longer give anyone permission to see me as less than. Don't dismiss my womanhood. I'm a sex worker, and I have the right to be here. You should vote wisely, live in your truth, burn it all goddamn down, and rise among the ashes. Sex Workers Outreach Project in LA was there with banners being visible for sex workers as part of feminism and the Women's March in general. And we would like to give a big thank you to Janet Mock for all the work she did last year 
specifically in keeping sex workers on the agenda and in the statement, despite attempts to have that term removed from the conversation. Uh, Janet, Janet Mock was fighting very visibly and very diligently to make sure that sex workers are still a part of this conversation. Yeah, I love how people quote her with her saying, like, uh, I know sex work to be work. I don't have any questions in my mind about that. Yeah. Like, that's like the big... It's like, she's very straightforward about her beliefs there, and it's really wonderful. It's wonderful to have her voice on that. It's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really grateful to her. Yeah, we went out to the... Um, Vanessa and I went out to the uh, Los Angeles Women's March um, with the Sex Workers Outreach Project. Here's Here's a little bit from that. All right, we're downtown. We're, we just got downtown to the women's march. Yeah, we're wearing uh, we're wearing our "Be Nice to Sex Workers" T-shirts and our SWAT buttons and our Viva Slut sweatshirt and slut hat. And we have our red umbrellas that say "Be Nice to Sex Workers" on them. That's our signs. Um, y'all came last year. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like? Be- like a year on, like a year after. This is a lot of anniversaries, right? This is like anniversary of inauguration, anniversary of the Women's March last year. Like, how are you all feeling? Anybody? Angrier. Yeah, I'd agree, angrier. Why Why does that emotion come up? Well, because you just see like the, what a year with the Trump presidency looks like, and you see the people who are... Um, being round up and deported, and you see the fear that DACA recipients are, are feeling um, with this limbo of renewal or or not. Um, and I mean, the government shut down yesterday, mm-hmm. like, and the the closing of federal funding is impacting so many different people and so many different uh, Native nations specifically who rely on federal funding to operate. I mean. Like, how do they protect their people if their their systems are, are shut down? And so it's just, uh, it's just, it's weird to be here. And it's weird to see so many people smiling and excited to just, you know, walk around. And we're like, but like, let's really have There's a real deep, shit. There's real <laughs> shit that's going on, you know? So like, it's good to like, you know, find community and be together and march and, and everything. But it's just... I keep flipping back and forth, I guess, mm-hmm. between like, oh, everyone here agrees with me and this feels good, to like, just being so upset and wondering where everyone, <laughs> where everyone was, was when all of this was like right. being passed right. and signed and yeah. happening. So it's just, I keep flip flipping <laughs> between those emotions yes. right now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like, what's happened in the last year, like. I don't know, like Puerto Rico, so many people still don't have power. Like, we're just, I don't know, we're in like a different moment. Houston, I mean, just, oh my God, like so many things. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's billed as the Women's March, but I feel like there's so many intersecting issues um, at the march, and there's like a lot of like anti Trump politics going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. There's the people behind you are selling protest buttons. 
And there's capitalism at work. <laughs> I mean, that's shadow economy. That's like that's how you that's how you deal outside of capitalism. Yeah. I think you know, and that's and the button says I heart Oprah, and you know, there's, they're sellable. They're totally sellable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does just feel like one of these sort of like uh, it non-celebratory. Like, if there's conflict about it being a celebratory march, it's like. Yeah. You know, can't can't we feel good about all being here together? And then also at the same time, like, why do we need to fucking all come out at 9 a.m. on a Saturday? Oh, because the shit is happening, right? And there's just, it's hard. It's like, that's an intensity that it, it gets very uncomfortable. Because, yeah, there's people in their smiling moments, and then there's people in their rage, and then there's people in their isolation, and there's people in their families, and, like, everyone's trying to do something. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's intense when it's this many people. Do we want to go find where things are? Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, we made it to the end. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's some art. The market is the end. <laughs> there's a little market at the end uh, and a gathering. And uh, we got our, we took our picture together. We had our bacon hot dogs along the way. Right. That was very important. Part of those, that economy we're talking about, that shadow <laughs> economy. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, we stood around a lot. Yes. Did a little bit of chanting. Yes. How did this one feel different than last year's? Last year's felt a little more... I don't want to use the word authentic, but like less planned, I guess. It felt more just kind of like, it felt just like everyone was like so angry and just wanted to be somewhere and do something. And it felt much more, it felt more emotional. It felt more like, ah, whereas this one felt like very organized and planned. And, you know, we do the things, we say the things, we're supposed to buy the stuff, you know, like, so that's the difference. I, I, I didn't go to the first one, but just seeing images of the first one in media coverage of it versus being in it this time, there's that feel of um, like the, the the year New York City celebrated Pride after same-sex marriage was legalized. There was a huge party. There was electricity everywhere. And then the next year, it's like, yeah, we're here again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the electricity's gone. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's also it's also tough because I think people are still feeling pretty demoralized. Like, you know, when you when you're dealing with the shock, like Trump had just gotten inaugurated, right? Like we're in shock, and then a year later we're like, oh my god, it's been a year of this. It's and still here, happening. <laughs> here we are, and that's yeah. a different feeling. It's harder. It's a it's a. It's a different level of like difficulty to be reaching together. So yeah, I feel like it was. People seem tired, honestly. To me, <laughs> maybe it's just because I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think but. something about the tired to be like, oh man, you know, it feels more like an obligation instead of like a, ah, I gotta do something now. You know, it feels more of like we gotta make sure they know we're still here. Let's get out there. Let's do it. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Any last thoughts? There were some very cute signs. Some people did some really great art. I don't, you know. Oh, yes. I, I feel compelled to end on some kind of positive. <laughs> I'm so really glad we came. Like, yeah. you know, just... And also, Bambi Salcedo spoke during the rally, and I didn't know she was going to, and that was really wonderful. Um, 
and I'm usually, I have, I'm a little bit cynical about the rally part, so it was really fun for me to know she was up there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So Ms. Rock 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our next headline uh, comes to us um, from Vice. Uh, so the uh, headline is like this. Many teen girls don't know that they can get an STI from other girls. Um, the Journal of Adolescent Health published in the last month in an article um, that looks at high schoolers' understanding of uh, lesbian sex in, in particular. Many of the sex ed programs are geared toward like heterosexual sex. And so it leaves people who identify as lesbian feeling uncomfortable for asking, number one, for asking for information about um, how to stay safe during same-sex interactions, but because the condom information that they're getting is mostly geared towards what to do with a penis, mm -hmm. um, they walk away with the, 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 the feeling that there doesn't need to be any kind of barriers. I was in grad school hearing from women in their mid-twenties that they couldn't get STIs from other women. And mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, 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 hey, what <laughs> the, what? Mm -hmm. Like, that belief that lesbians don't give each other STIs is, a, is pervasive. It's mm -hmm. very, it's very weird. Like, I don't even understand where that came from. Like... <laughs> How did that even get started? <laughs> it's like... Probably by assuming that females have no independent sexuality, let alone sexuality for each other. Hmm. That would be one guess. Yeah, as part of the study, um, it said that many of the respondents associated condoms with pregnancy. Ah. And didn't associate them with female sexual partners. And many said that they were more trusting of female sexual partners when it came to sexual health. Interesting. Is there a study about whether or not that's correct? Like, is are young girls more trustworthy than young boys sexually? Because I definitely have that instinct. Just wondering if there's... Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. even know how you would study Hey, that. if you're a sex researcher and you know the answer to this question, <laughs> shoot us an email at <laughs> onthedresser.com. Because here's... Onthedresser at gmail.com. Here's the thing. I don't think you can test how trustworthy teenagers are about their reporting without engaging them in reporting. Yeah. Right? You have to get them to self-report in order to find out if they're self-reporting to their partners. And so it's that... And maybe you could. Maybe there is a large database of that information. But it seems really tough to get permission to get a study going where you're asking teenagers about their sexual behavior and also about their reporting of their sexual behavior, given that it's actually against the law for teenagers yeah. to be having sex in those states. So there's just like a lot of, like a lot of uh, unanswered questions there mm -hmm. be because of the constriction that you're under when you're trying to do this kind of research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another uh, interesting, which we've, I think we've talked about this when we were on the radio on Sex Please, um, another barrier for uh, girls, uh, specifically uh, lesbian girls, to um, a barrier for them to use like dental dams is their availability. Like you can't find them in a drugstore, mm -hmm. um, CVS, Rite Aid, none of them here carry them. You can find them in a sex shop, but even those are eighteen and up spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's that also like uh, significant. 
barrier to using barriers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if the, you can say that. Yeah, the barriers to the barriers. Uh, the person who authored the study, um, when they were speaking to Vice, said, quote, Our findings suggest that we need to create a more inclusive curriculum to help lesbian and bisexual girls have the knowledge they need to make healthy sexual decisions. She says, Young people need accurate sexual health information, but sex education has traditionally focused on heterosexual sex. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of uh, education focusing on heterosexual sex and the problems with education in general when we're talking about sex, there was also a study that came out in the Journal of Adolescent Health about the puberty experiences of low-income girls in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us what happened with that? Okay. So the title of the article is Puberty Experiences of Low-Income Girls in the United States. And it's a systematic review of qualitative literature from 2000 to 2014. So it's a, meta, it's a meta-analysis of a bunch of studies that were already conducted. And it looks at the aggregate data. What, what do all of these studies together seem to suggest, right? And the conclusions are pretty simply stated that the limited existing evidence, which points to some of the problems we were just talking about, about studying, studying adolescents specifically, But the limited existing evidence suggests that low-income girls in the United States are unprepared for puberty and have largely negative experiences of this transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the author of that study was quoted in Health Magazine as saying that uh, findings from the current review suggest that low-income girls today expressed a sentiment similar to girls studied in the 1980s and 1990s, a feeling that they were largely unprepared for puberty and menarche, which is the word for first menstruation. So... What, what I pull from that, because I, I did a little digging on that, and what, and what she means by that is that the studies that were done in the 1980s and 1990s where we got this data that says that girls don't really feel like they know what's going on were studies done with mostly middle-class girls, uh, middle, middle-class and higher. So we had this crisis of sex education that started happening. Um, this is prior to abstinence-only movement. There was a more comprehensive sex ed movement that happened in the early 90s. Um, and then, you know, we have abstinence only, we have all of these other, like, uh, more conservative, uh, blowback. Mm -hmm. And during all of that, low income girls get none of the benefits of the increased education necessarily, and they don't tend to experience the cultural change in the same way. And so what Herbert is saying as the author of this study, is that maybe middle-class girls are feeling a little bit better about getting their periods now, but we left the lower-income girls behind in that movement. So that, that, they, that they're still feeling it as really, really difficult and scary. One of the specific results that they're talking about is also that low-income girls get pretty much conclusively more negative messages about puberty, that the the way they experience puberty is different. Um, yeah. I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> so as we move into this conversation with Nama Bloom, this is something to think about that, you know, there is a, um, there is a dearth of information still, even though we have all of these websites and all of this, like, we, we have so much more research that shows us that comprehensive sexuality education is better for everyone, that people have better outcomes. Um, we've seen reductions in pregnancies when you have comprehensive sex education. You see a reduction in rates of STIs in young people. There's tons of evidence that shows that it works. 
while we're saying all this, just remember 34, only 34 states in the U.S. Um, have laws saying that they're, that its students need to have uh, comprehensive sex ed, and only 13 of those states uh, mandate that it be medically accurate. Right. <laughs> so, okay. so here comes, so here comes into this void. Here comes the website HelloFlow, which is a online community. It's a space for um, girls to get information and get period supplies. And there's some really funny videos on there, which we'll talk about later. And the uh, creator of HelloFlow, her name is Nama Bloom. She has a new book out called HelloFlow, The Guide Period. And it's everything puberty book for the modern girl. So she's trying to move into that space where the lack of education and lack of parental or familial support is happening and have like a real-time conversation, real talk, uh, with people who are moving into puberty. So let's hear what she has to say. All right. Hi, everyone. I am sitting today with Nama Bloom, who's the author of um, The Guide, period. <laughs> I'm the co-founder of Hello Flow. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because um, we often on this podcast are talking about really uh, adult subjects, which of course just means sex in the body, <laughs> um, sex and gender and bodies and sex work and politics. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of things that really are um, considered to be adult content. But I think that your your work is really at this interesting intersection of what is adult content um, when it's about young women's bodies, it's, it's young women's content. Um, mm -hmm. but it's also obviously got, um, that sort of edge of like being, being about, um, vaginas, like just the mm -hmm. fact that the vagina is part of the conversation somehow makes it adult content, even though it's for young women. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that, um, that sort of journey for, of making a book and making hello flow and, and what sorts of feedback you are getting and what that world is like. But, um, first let me just ask, um, can you introduce our listeners to what the project is, what the guide is, what, what hello flow is or sure. was? Yeah, yeah. Happy to. Um, so I, like you said, I founded HelloFlow.com, which originally was a business, uh, with the goal of sending pads and tampons to women each month. Um, it was just a subscription service. Uh, but I um, did a lot of research as I was thinking about launching the business. And I, you know, one of the areas where I got very interested and I realized that there was this big need was the experience of transitioning from girlhood to womanhood and what that did, not just for the girls, but for the parents and the grownups in their lives and how that impacted their relationship. Um, so I used that insight to make my first couple of videos uh, to promote the business. So the videos were Camp Gyno and First Moon Party. And the videos both went viral, which was like a crazy experience in and of itself. But what happened as the result of those businesses is really what shaped where, I mean, those videos is really what shaped where the business went and what this book is, which is that um, when you have something go viral, people start contacting you. And in my case, what went viral was stories of girls transitioning from 
you know, childhood to like, at least from a physicality level to adulthood and um, in a positive way, Mm -hmm. which was kind of groundbreaking that period could actually bestow power on someone versus like make them have to hide in a closet. Um, And I started getting emails like thousands and thousands of emails from women and girls around the world. Like this was not just an American phenomenon. And uh, two things happened. One, older women were telling me like they watched like Camp Gyno in particular, they watched Camp Gyno and they wept because they couldn't believe that there was this like empowering heroine who was the girl with the first period and how they had felt so shamed when they went through the, the experience. And then the, on the other side, there were all these girls emailing me, asking me questions about their bodies that, you know, I was just confounded how someone who doesn't know me, who's 12 years old or 10 or 11 is finding me on the internet and asking me questions that I felt like they should be having with the grownups in their lives, not a perfect stranger on the internet. And it was those emails that made me realize that HelloFlow had to turn into content mm-hmm. destination rather mm-hmm. than just be focused on selling products. Um, and that's what it is today. And it's the website is much more about um, women's sexuality and health from you know every stage, puberty through menopause and beyond. The book... Uh, is focused on helping girls go through the transition from, you know, of puberty um, and help them do it, hopefully, with their confidence intact. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's help for people who were born with female parts, um, and there's not, there's not particularly a focus on young trans women or on trans women going through um, going, going through hormonal changes later in life, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Originally there was actually a chapter in the book, um, that actually spoke about those, those issues. And we had, um, we had a story, uh, like a personal essay written by a trans man. Um, and actually that essay is on helloflow.com. People could find it, but, um, the book is geared towards like eight to 13 year olds. And we had, we had a lot of internal debates, um, with our publisher and also with ourselves at a co-writer about whether or not parents buying this book are going to give us permission to talk about all of these topics with their girls and, um, whether or not, the book would end up in the girl's hands at all. Mm. So this was, you know, it's a very feminist puberty book. Um, But I remember having a conversation with my publisher one day, because the other thing is there's a lot that was sort of toned down in the book and um, even the title of the book. And my publisher said to me, like, Nama, there's so much good that this book can do if we get it into girls' hands. And our objective is to get it into as many girls' hands as possible. Mm -hmm. And if that means 
the subject the you know the title isn't there will be blood we're not going to have the title be there will be blood and if that means we're not going to talk at all about sexuality we're not going to talk at all about sexuality because we know that there is content in here that they need and no one else is giving to them and that's just how how it works and um you know like there were a lot of debates and a lot of compromises but the end result is a puberty book that is in my mind so far and away beyond (laughs) where everything else in this category is and I think it really has pushed the boundaries and you know you know the next book might be a little bit more inclusive right whether I write it or someone else does I think we're pushing where where we've been yeah it's such an interesting problem because it it feels like you know on the one hand who who is having the fear right is it the parents is it the publishers (laughs) is it the publishers knowing the parents because at the same time we have of course more trans kids than of course ever seen before and we and we also have less comprehensive sex ed in certain states like the, the, the world of discussing puberty and bodies and sexuality is cacophonous. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a clear, it does not seem like a clear-cut marketplace to me. So, mm-hmm. you know. You know, I think it's, um, I think it's a mix of the parents, the publishers, and quite honestly, also the buyers at the large retailers, right? Yeah. So the book only gets distribution if the Walmarts and the Targets of the World and Barnes and Nobles, and I mean, Amazon is different because you could always just put it up, but it only gets distribution if the retailers get on board. Right. And I, I believe with my heart that this book will be so helpful to the girls who read it. Right. And it's it's not as inclusive as it could be by any stretch, but it is far more inclusive than anything out there. And I would also argue though, you know, I'm I'm not trans myself, but I would argue that whether one is trans or not, and just like I say to people like this book while it's written for girls, also has information for boys. Like, it does explain social and cultural and historical perceptions of women's bodies. It explains what happens during adolescence with brain development. It explains what happens with hormones. And it talks about friendships and social relationships. So it still hits on a lot of the topics that I think would be necessary for any child going through yeah. um, puberty. But it for sure is it is focused on uh, cisgendered females, no question. I I hear you, and thanks for being so upfront about that. You know, I think that just because we are a queer focused podcast, one of the things that we have to do is really think through like what does it mean to be a queer feminist? <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be yeah. a feminist when you're trying to also when you're when you're thinking about women. Who are you thinking about? You know, so these are questions that we're handling here, and I, I really appreciate your um, your forthrightness on that topic. Um, something I really loved about it was uh, the, the way that there is this emphasis on really kind of taking a meta look at how the world treats people with periods <laughs> and what it feels like to get a period in, you know, in 2017 in America and the, and the, the sense that... Um, We've completely normalized the shame 
you know, that the, the, the shame is so normalized that it doesn't even occur to us to question why do I feel weird in the mm -hmm. aisle <laughs> where the products are, <laughs> you know, so that you, you ask that question, like, why are we made to feel uncomfortable for something that, like, eh, probably about half of the population is going through? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, no chapter in this book talks about the internalization of culture more than the pubic hair chapter, quite honestly, <laughs> which um, if you stop and look at it and like if you stop and think about trends with pubic hair, which, you know, it wasn't until researching the book that I knew that, that people have been telling women what to do with their pubic hair since like ancient Egyptian times, but we take it as just like a fact of life that, you know, it's expected for us to remove our pubic hair, which is absolutely insane, right? Like, it's um, it's something our body grows. It's totally natural. And for people who want to remove it, like, all the power to them. But it's a choice. And we're raising girls who are seeing images and don't think it's choice, even when they're not sexually active. And it just feels so bananas to me that... What, I, what we wanted to do with that chapter was show, like, this has been going on literally since the time of the ancient Egyptians. And you can even see, like, we have illustrations that show the different styles of pubic hair. And it's all fashion. And so much of what we internalize are actually just fashion choices and trend choices or pressure from the outside world. And you don't have to do it. And that was really, um, you know, we try over and over in the book to reinforce that message of you get to choose. Yes. So that was very important. And, you know, it's, it goes hand in hand with shame because the thing about puberty is in part why we feel shame is because we develop breasts and we get hairier and people start looking at us differently and treating us differently. Mm -hmm. I like how this book feels like a real, um, like a uh, foundation for later conversations about sexual consent, right? Yes. So I, because that's sort of the arena I'm working in is a slightly older population talking about consent. Um, and when I was teaching middle schoolers sex ed, I was always trying to get that conversation about consent in there. And there's a way in which this book allows for something that I don't know that I'd thought about when I was doing that education, which is you get to consent to how you handle your own puberty. <laughs> like there's a mm -hmm. level of consent that I think is missing even in other puberty guides that I checked out just to think, just to see sort of like, you know, where does this book fall? And I think you're right. I think it's, you know, it's really pushing, it's really pushing some limits um, because of the way that other puberty books don't, give um, the reader the same level of uh, respect for their agency. This, this book yeah. is really about respecting the agency of the, of the girl going through puberty. I mean, that's actually, uh, Vanessa, how I describe it to people is the book. It, the goal is to help girls and young women develop a, a sense of agency over their bodies. I mean, that's why there are so many times in the book where we say, what feels right to you is what's right, period, end of story. Like, it's, we are questioning ourselves constantly and teaching girls to question themselves, and boys as well. Obviously, the book is written for one population, but 
we are removing that sense of agency from kids without even knowing we're doing it. And, um, you know, they're, they're susceptible to every, you know, they have tons of images they're looking at and, and messages that they're receiving. And a lot of those messages say you don't have agency and we really wanted to give it back to them. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what's happening with the book and are you, what are what are you encountering now that, now that it's out in the world and it's starting to, starting to live its, live its life? Yeah. So, uh, it was published on October 17th, so it's still, like, it's not even two months, right? October, November, December. Uh, so um, the feedback has been really positive. Um, I've heard from a lot of parents who give it to their daughters and then say, like, the daughter stays at, won't let them, like, take it away. They just want to consume it and finish it, which is great. Um uh, and I've heard from girls, like, you know, the first line in the book is there's no such thing as clean underwear. And it all, you know, it talks about discharge and crusty underwear. And, you know, it's, it basically sets the stage and the tone for the book that it's not like your mother's puberty book, basically. Um, and girls are really responding to it. Like they feel like someone is talking to them honestly and not talking down to them and not treating them like unsophisticated beings because the truth is like 13 year olds today are watching the walking dead. But then when we talk to them (laughs) about their bodies, we talk to them like they're babies. Right. Because we're afraid. Yes. Because we're uncomfortable. Absolutely. It's because the growth, I mean, it's our own, it's all our stuff, right. That we put on our kids. Um, So I feel like, kids feel respected by this book, mm-hmm. which has been a really, you know, nice thing to hear. Yeah. And you can, of course, decline to answer or whatever, but I am really curious about how media is working for you. because um, Well, it's, it's actually been much more positive than I expected. Um, we got, the day the book came out, uh, there was a review in in the Chicago Tribune saying like, this is the puberty book your girl needs without even knowing she needs it. Um, which was great. It was really positive and like publishers weekly, all of the trade press has been fairly kind to us. So yes, yeah, so we've been pretty fortunate. Like it's been very well received, um, and well reviewed. Um, you know, it hasn't got, it hasn't like blown up and been covered by every media outlet I think people you know people are talking about periods much more these days um but you know it's still not the topic that the morning shows want to wake up and talk about I would argue though that given that the book is so focused on helping girls maintain a sense of agency especially now in the like me too era this book is even more critical and I feel like more relevant for our times because part of it, I've spoken to a few moms who were telling me about talking to their girls about sexual harassment. And I feel like so much of it is about teaching girls to know what's not okay and what doesn't feel good. And, you know, that's very much with this book, you know, the Mm -hmm. message of the book. And I think like, a lot of parents don't know how to have these conversations with kids because it makes us really uncomfortable. So, right, right. so it's been, it's been positive. It hasn't been like blowing up the charts, but, uh, 
it's find it's finding its home in a lot of hands and you know I'm thrilled and I feel like the girls who are getting this book are really lucky because it's not what myself or my friends had growing up yeah how about you personally the research the process you know just reflecting on how you were raised to think about your own body and your own period you know just I I guess maybe I'm asking a little bit about what changed for you over the course of making the book or how did you reflect on your own experience um you know I grew up in a pretty open household uh my mom was always very sort of upfront and open and didn't hide anything, um, which was great. We also never sat down and had like a talk, but I always somehow knew what menstruation was. And uh, my parents were divorced when I was 12 and I lived in the house with my mother and my sister. So like it was around me and I wasn't surprised by anything. So that was, that was good. And I always felt like fine about it except for discharge which I thought was like weird and creepy and just my problem I didn't realize it was universal um but you know mostly I have to say what I realized in writing this book and I wrote it with a you know I have a co-author Glynis McNichol who's like a brilliant feminist writer and um one of the things that we realized in writing it was that in addition to teaching girls about their bodies like what felt more important to us and more mission critical than someone understanding that like what hormones control their period was giving that historical context and teaching kids how to look at the world with critical eyes and understand the messages that they're getting um so that became much more of the mission of the book. Mm. Um, And then the other thing was we ended the book with a chapter on friendship. And, you know, I tell the story of when I was a little shit in fifth grade and like was terrible kid and how I learned from that lesson. And we have a lot of uh, stories from women and girls uh, from puberty and beyond. And, But the message is about how even though during middle school things can be rough and friends can be awful to each other, this mean girls thing is just a trope. And the reality is that women can be your closest friends and allies in your life and like work on those friendships because those friendships are meaningful and they are, you know, it's the sisterhood, you know, and, and it was very important for me that, uh, the kids reading this walk away knowing like there are people out there that are good and it's like the power of unity. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. It's definitely not something that was ever emphasized for me as a young person. Um, you, you know, that my sexual education definitely did, did not include a sort of socialization towards supporting other girls. Yes. And in fact, culturally, we do just the opposite. I mean, people are always talking about girl drama or mean girls and things like that. And and that stuff happens, no question. But uh, there are many more stories that are positive that we could share and we choose not to. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to talk about? I'm 
I'm mindful of your time, and I'm also, uh, I'm already sort of sold. (laughs) Um, Is there a part, would you like to read anything to us? Um, No, I mean, I think that the last thing I would just say about this book is, like, I really feel like, I mean, I'm so proud of this book. I really am, and I feel like... um, there are things that, you know, grown women have read it and have said to me, I can't believe I didn't know this about my body until I read your puberty book. Um, but you know, it's, it's funny and it's, it's, there's so many testimonials from kids. We worked so hard, um, to be racially inclusive in our illustration and in our stories of people. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I would love for every girl to have this book. (laughs) Like, I think it would really raise a generation of um, more empowered young women. So get Hello Flow, the guide period for every young woman they know. Thank you so much for the work you put in and for creating something that has that kind of, um, you know, privacy factor. I think having a book as opposed to a website is actually really important. Yes, yes. How can people find you, find the work, find the book? Um, So the book should be at all of your uh, independent bookstores and also on Amazon. Um, And I have a website, namabloom.com. And then helloflow.com, which I no longer run, but uh, is a phenomenal resource for um, women's health is uh, online. All right, everyone. So Hello Flow, the guide period is the book that we've been discussing with Nama Bloom. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Vanessa. You heard Nama Bloom mention her viral videos, First Wound Party and Camp Dino. Uh, Lauren, Vanessa, and I uh, sat down to watch that first moon party together, uh, and here's those reactions. First, Jenny got it. Then stupid Vicky got it. And I tried everything to get my period. Nothing. So, I faked it. We have to celebrate. No, we don't. Oh, it's family tradition. We're throwing you a first moon party. Hi. Do you make vagina cakes? Hello? That was so cute. Oh my god! So initial thoughts after you're watching First Moon Party for the first time. <laughs> I like how it's for like the moms too. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to be freaked out. You can be totally present with it. Like, mm-hmm. you know. But that was like there was some mean ass shit in there. There's some mean ass shit, but there there's also like that I have seen like fourth and fifth graders get very real about that um not trying to call it lying Mm. but like being misleading about when they start just to look like to be cool not to be cool but to look like they're maturing with their other friends because you know not everybody hits puberty at the same time so it you know not it's not that it may be isolating but it doesn't feel good when you see your friends you know, making these leaps faster than you when you're that age, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of like for both. It's for moms. Yeah. And that mom gets to do these things to get a, a revenge on a daughter who told a fib. <laughs> um, but it's also like encouraging these 
young girls to like not rush into it because like you know big things happen and you don't know <laughs> yeah 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 like the first moon party being the most embarrassing and horrible mm-hmm. and hilarious thing mm-hmm. it's like yeah I don't know like she she has now a space to you know get her actual period not have to be totally embarrassed like oh my god that was so funny I loved it um did you have a first moon party or any kind of did your family like do anything special for that or did they kind of leave you to go through the process um I just actually I just checked in with my mom about this recently because we remember it differently okay (laughs) of course (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was young. I was 11 and, or 12, uh, just at the very beginning of, of just turning 12. And um, it had been really a, a bad day. Like, I had to give a speech in front of the class. Like, I got my period and was giving a speech in front of the class and was, like, wearing light-colored pants. And, like, all of the things that could possibly make it stressful were occurring. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting into the car when my mom picked me up from school and telling her I got my period today and just, like, feeling bad. Like, I felt bad. Did not feel good. And she was like, well, welcome to hell. (laughs) We're going to get you some ice cream. (laughs) And her memory is like, I would not have said that. And I was like, well, whatever you said, it lodged itself in my mind as welcome to hell. (laughs) And she was like, I definitely got you ice cream. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I remember the ice cream. Yeah. So that's what you can agree on. Totally. <laughs> I, do, I do remember feeling kind of uh, proud, too, because I was one of the earlier girls among my friends. Okay. And there was something to that because I was also a Christian and a prude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I wasn't getting coolness points for making out the way my friends were okay I wasn't letting people touch me really and mm-hmm. like I was holding a candle for this one person and it was just all this like I was not I was not the, the alpha slut that I am now I was definitely like a baby okay. in, a, in a way and I but I was very affected by by peer pressure and so I do remember that feeling of like this like kicks me up a notch into that sort of like Mm -hmm. woman stuff Mm -hmm. where like I get to be respected for my womanhood Mm -hmm. even though I'm not making out with boys that mattered to me as a like you know reason did you get a first moon party I did not get a first I did not get a first moon party um but I feel like my mom would have thrown me one if I had asked for one and it would have been equally horrifying. <laughs> Although there's no way in hell my dad or my stepdad would wear a red spandex jumpsuit to jump out of a cake. <laughs> um, um, but I, yeah, I, I could definitely see my mom being excited about something like that and thinking it was a very, very good idea. So did your family not make a, a big deal of it? No, um, but that was largely due to my own request where I did not I did not want to talk to either to any of the men in my house about it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pretend it was not a thing that was happening to me. Mm-hmm. But I did make a big deal about it with all my friends and that was really nice. Um I was the last girl in my class to get my period, but I'm also right at the birthday cutoff, so I've always been like almost a year younger than most of the people in my class. 
And when it came to periods and drinking age, that was particularly irritating <laughs> position to be in because all my friends could got their periods before me. They could drive before me. But I was so excited that I sent, you know, I, it was in middle school, eighth grade, and I went to the bathroom and I noticed spotting and I was super excited. So when I got back to social studies class, I wrote a note and passed it to my best friend who passed it to one of our other good girlfriends and it went around to all the girls in the room and Whoa! everyone was like, would, would like catch my eye and be, you know, give me a thumbs up or like an air five or something or just a grin. And then one girl whose full name I definitely remember threatened to pass it to one of the boys in the class and I lost my shit where I was just full on panicking, but she just laughed and crumpled it up and threw it away for me. Um, but yeah, so it was a very sweet moment of utter terror and also a lot of support and solidarity yeah. from my best girlfriends. Um, That's very cute. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, um, in that transition grade, because I was at that school of two years, so in that transition grade between fourth and fifth, when the fourth graders started moving into fifth, um, I would have girls come to my office asking where, like, tampons and pads, because they all knew I had them. Yeah. Right? I, I especially ordered, because I was like, eh, these girls are starting to get these things at yeah. school. Yeah. They all knew I had them. And not that I knew when everybody had started, but, like, you get a good sense of who are the ones that actually need these things versus who are the ones that are, like, coming to the nurse's office to score cool points mm -hmm. because they're asking for tampons. It's mm -hmm. like, you haven't. Have you? No, you haven't. And I know you haven't. And your parents would have told me. But, yeah. like, you know, you yeah. know there's, like, a, an extra discussion that the adults have behind the scenes, maybe. Um, because I did have some parents, like, come to the nurse's office. And that's not a thing that, before I took this job, would have associated Mm -hmm. with that responsibility of being a school nurse. But there are, yeah. there are parents who, um, you know, either just want to make sure that, that, you, that I had supplies or wanted to request a certain type of supply, um, you know, um, certain, uh, you know, the organic tampons or, you know, the, the ones with all the cute buzzwords on them that cost more. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Versus just, like, the standard. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I, it was my first interaction with, with having to go through those things. But, like, there was a, a weird delineation between, like, you know, the girls who, who got breast buds early, the girls who started their periods early, the girls who would ask for tampons, and then the girls who, like, were happy not having to deal with any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing is, like, I, I guess I feel totally relaxed about girls who are, like, wanting their period because they're probably going to get one, so... That seems like a better way to go than the girls who are like dreading it, terrified of it, feel like they don't know what it means or what's going to happen to mm -hmm. them. Or for young trans children for whom that's like a that's like a dysphoric moment, like a really intense piece of body dysphoria. Like, I don't want this, you know, um, like that seems like the stuff to really kind of keep your eye out for. And like girls who are like, oh, yeah, I, I totally got it. You're like, all right, you know, like, that's cool, like, whatever. Uh -huh. You know, because those are the girls who are probably Googling a bunch of shit about it and, like, trying to learn about it and trying to get... And there's something about that that's, like, 
I find that sort of endearing and okay. sort of like I can see that as being healthy development mm-hmm. to want your period. And and I, I would have more concern or I do have more concern for young women who are freaked out about it because of the sense they have of it being dirty or gross or mm-hmm. wrong or whatever. I'm broken now or, you know, I definitely have had students who have written in the, in essays to me. You know, we because when I teach gender studies, I'm often asking them to write about gender policing and how they experienced gender, how gender was explained to them when they were young. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do get essays from students that are like telling me traumatic first period stories where they were told, like, now you're unclean, now you're you know, now you're dirty, and you better keep you better keep those boys away from you. You better like. You know, like all this sudden pressure to not get pregnant mm-hmm. or you're cast out of the family. Like, we're, you know what I mean? Like, there's all of it, like, insane, intense stuff that, that people go through with first period. That that worries me a lot more. Okay. To know that people are going through the isolation and the shame and the fear and all that. And then also being told, like, now we are afraid you are going to bring shame upon all our names. You know, like, right. dude. <laughs> she's 12 you know like there's an intensity to that that I want to be respectful of it being like a cultural thing but I also don't like at the same time I'm also kind of like yeah but that's fucked up to do to a person so I don't know I I I think about that like what that pressure is and the first moon party is like I mean yeah it's it's just a really fun... It feels like it's San Francisco. Like, it feels like... This is how you would punish your child in San Francisco. <laughs> is to throw them a super embarrassing first moon party where people bring them presents and talk about them getting married. Right. <laughs> so, do you have a minute to watch Camp Gyno? Yeah. Okay, Camp Gyno is, is interesting because it, it kind of takes... It's a different perspective. Um, not wanting to ruin it for you or any listeners, but... Um, it is somebody who's super enthused about, I guess, reaching the blood sister stage. Beginning of summer, and no one knew me at camp. I was just a big random loser. Then, things changed. I got my period. The red badge of courage. I was the first one to get it, so I was like the expert. I became the camp Gyno. I became the camp gyno. <laughs> well, that one reminded me, my students had a summer camp in between those two years I was there. Um, they have it every year. And at one of the away camps for the older kids, um, there was a moment that got back to me of like a girls circle. Um, and it was like fifth through eighth grade girls kind of uh-huh. hanging and doing a bonding thing with the female teachers and like cool, cool. having a moment. Um, they came up with a way to teach the younger girls how to put in tampons, like with a dance and tong and everything called the scoop and swoop. And that was how they would teach each other. Like they would really teach the girls how to it's really cute. put in a tampon. Yeah. No one ever did that for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was a cute little like camp guy in a moment. Like, you know, this is the time that they're hanging out and talking about it. And like the, the girls track coach would, you know, come to my office sometimes and be like, you know, we were at track practice and the girls started talking and X, Y, Z, I don't know what to tell them, mm, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, we would have these moments of just like, uh, kind of girls being together and having an adult present, uh, usually another 
woman or a, a female adult present and, you know, having these conversations. Yeah. And sometimes those adults were caught off guard. Um, oh yeah, like feeling like, uh oh, I don't, I don't even really know what to say to them or mm-hmm. what right, I can say. What I can say, mm-hmm. right? Not that, not that people are necessarily uneducated about how to talk to young girls about periods, which I think they are. <laughs> but even if they are educated and know kind of like you know basic medical terminology or how to talk to them about it or what their options are, there's still this fear of like, are the parents going to come after me? Mm-hmm. For having a conversation with the girls, you know, like, I think that that's very, that's very real. Um, When I was teaching sex ed for junior high at a summer camp, (laughs) so this, so this one really hits home to me, Um, I would do these conversations that were like part puberty, part sexual consent, part, you know, like safer sex stuff, because this is like 13 to 15 year olds. So Mm -hmm. some of them were active, right? And some of them were like, I can st- I can get pregnant from a toilet seat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it was like a huge range of what kind of information they'd had. And I definitely heard from them that like they weren't hearing this stuff, like they were not getting real talk from adults and the kids were smart, like they knew that it was about liability. <laughs> they oh, wow. they knew it. They were like they don't want my parents to call the school. Mm-hmm. And I was like well, that's true. You know, <laughs> like that's real. Yeah. Like they're not. You know, they know. They know it's, what's happening. It's... They're like, you can't hit me, and you can't talk to me about sex. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's terrifying. I I had to sit down. I had to like have a conference, like a a large call-in conference with like third through fifth grade parents. Um, and it was interesting to see the parents who cared and showed up and which parents were like, oh, you're going to have that conversation? Great. Like, send me the notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, people were very, um, they asked me a lot of questions about the terminology I'd be using. Yeah. And about the types of conversations. And are you mm-hmm. going to talk about this? And how far is that conversation going to go? And, you know, there was a lot of, I don't want to call it control, but there was, the, the parents wanted to have a lot of varying input from like keep it super narrow to like no these kids should have all the information right Um, yeah yeah because you have different you have different values around comprehensive mm -hmm. education Mm -hmm. versus not and I I, it's interesting now like I'm in my late 30s having this like completely different experience of my period now because I'm using a cup Mm -hmm. and I've never used the cup before Mm -hmm. I'm using this fun factory fun cup we should get a we should get a sponsorship. Fun factory, fun cup. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, to, in a certain way, it is fun because I think that it actually is probably better for my body than than tampons, which I've been using for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a learning curve. And they tell you, like, give it a couple of cycles. You know, you might want to use a backup method, like wear a pad while you wear the cup because if you don't get the cup in right you bleed it just the the, the flow just comes around the cup you mm-hmm. know and and like you can't really change it in a public restroom that easily because it's a lot of blood like you take the thing out and it's like your hands covered in blood the cups covered in blood now the toilet's covered in blood like there's blood everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just like not a feature of most Period products. Most period products are designed so that you have very little contact with your own vagina or with the blood. Okay. And then you have like... There's there's blood? It's not a blue liquid? (laughs) 
that that you produce it yearly now? Okay. <laughs> or monthly? Okay. It's not just like blue water. Yeah. What the fuck? That is so weird, isn't it? Um, but they pour the blue water. But the yeah, the the period. Then you have the tampons that have no applicator. Mm-hmm. That women won't use them because they're like, oh, I don't put my finger in there. Like I've had this conversation where someone's like, hey, do you have a tampon? And I'm like, sure. Here's your tampon. And they're like, where's the applicator? And I'm like, oh, I I, I don't I don't use applicator tampons because. Are they worried that they're gonna transfer bacteria to them? Like that's a that's a. Right, like, oh, I don't do it because I don't like to wash my hands before I go in the stall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, which I guess is a thing that could be cured by, yeah, a 20-second hand wash. <laughs> no, I... And after, I guess. Yeah, like, you wash your hands twice. It's like a thing you have to do if you don't use an applicator on mm-hmm. your tampon. Like, okay, that's not so bad. I don't know, that's... I, no, I actually have experienced it as women being like, I don't want to put my finger in my vagina. Like, okay. uncomfortable with putting their finger in their vagina. Hmm. And not a lot. That's not my friends now, you know. But mm-hmm. definitely when I was younger. And the cup really changes your relationship with it because you have to dig around. You have to have your finger all the way up in there. Like, you are... You know, you have to know where your cervix is in mm-hmm. order to effectively use a cup. And uh, And I had to change... You know, like, I've had to do... I, <laughs> I've definitely been in a public restroom with blood everywhere being like, hmm, <laughs> do I have extra pants in the car? Like, and these are the kinds of problems that you have with your period very early on. Okay. When you are not used to the flow, when you wear a tampon for too long or whatever, and you get these, you know, you have accidents or whatever. And it's funny to do it now, to be like... Wait, no, I know how to handle a period, you know, and then mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't. I have blood all over my clothes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> there, speaking of the blue liquid, like we just mentioned, there was a, like, comedy sketch video somewhere on YouTube that showed, like, what would happen if they stopped using the blue liquid, and I think society would burn down. Yeah, people would be like, ah! <laughs> Yeah. The way we stopped uh, cigarette commercials, tampon commercials would be stopped within 24 hours. If, if, they, if actual blood was being represented. If, if any kind of red liquid, mm-hmm. I think, was being represented. Because, of course, the, the thing they used in this, like, funnier Die or College Humor, whatever video it was, was just a thick red paint, essentially. Right. yeah. And, like, my own just emotional visceral reaction to it was like oh if that was my reaction to just seeing something that i know scientifically like i'm educated on it and i you know but then seeing it on a commercial and i had a reaction to it like people's heads would explode right right (laughs) which is a really odd thing considering the fact that like we're all looking at it in our own underwear all the time Mm mm-hmm you know what i mean like what are we supposed to how much repression of internalized shame and disgust are we doing mm-hmm. with our with our periods if if you know what i mean if we mm-hmm. can't look at the television and just see and, and I, I, th- I think that's definitely something that nama bloom is working with 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 hello flow where she's just like look at it it's just stuff yeah when i say heads would explode i'm mainly talking about men <laughs> like i feel that's like nice like you. women who have gone through it before will be like yeah it's nothing yeah you know yeah. kid uh younger Women who have had this um, have 
maybe not had their periods yet and are either afraid or ashamed or whatever may have a reaction to it. Yeah. Um, seeing it on on a television screen. Um, but yeah, when I say heads would explode, it's it's mostly men. Yeah. Would be just like nah, <laughs> just like. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a, you know, there's something about societal norms now that it, I'm saying now, I'm, I mean, this has been a couple hundred years, but like where the things that are inside of your body are not supposed to come outside of your body, except in very private scenario. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and this isn't true everywhere. Like there's lots of places where you can like hawk up a loogie and, and spit it on the street and people aren't that grossed out. Like... Or you can, you know, urinate and defecate in public and it's just kind of like it is what it is and mm-hmm. that's life and it kind of sucks, but there it is. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, there's cultural expectations that we have around keeping your fluids really under control. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it taps into something unconscious, really deep to think of there being like a blood flow that mm-hmm. is happening it's just like, ah, you know, like that's not supposed to be happening. That's not supposed to be happening. And it's like, yeah, it is actually supposed to be happening on the regular. Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, on a pretty predictable day a month, if you can. Um, and not, not that there's anything wrong with having a less predictable cycle, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that sort of that sense of like, actually those fluids come out of your body. That's healthy. Like that's confusing given the messages that, that we're given always about like, don't have don't have body fluid, don't have hair, don't have smells. Yeah. Mm. So Yeah. I really like that normalization factor. I didn't really have that with my friends very much, so mm. that's very sweet to hear. Like I definitely had a lot more of the kind of uh, isolation that um that Nama Bloom is trying to reduce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With HelloFlow and with the guide, period. Like the book, the website, all of it is about trying to reduce that sense of shame and isolation, right? And I, I just really identified with that. So it's cool to see that I found it's out not totally our generation. I found out later that I had been on sort of the isolating side for some of my friends, which, again, was because I just had no idea what the hell they were going through. Like, I, I didn't know for at least a year or two that... One of my best friends used a tampon for the first time at my birthday party because it was a pool party. But I definitely had, this was a couple years early for me. So this, this was something she didn't tell me at the time because I would, I probably would have asked her what a tampon was. Like, I don't understand this. Tampon technology was a mystery for a very long time for me. You didn't get a scoop and swoop song. No, I didn't get a song. But is there, like, was that a, like, where where did that decision come from? Was that, like, a personal decision? Was that, a like, a family values decision? Because I, I know some parents, when I was um, doing school nursing, that were like, I don't want my child to have a tampon yet. Oh, no, it was, it was complete lack of physical coordination and okay. no idea what I was doing. All right. And re- absolute refusal to talk to anyone let alone have anybody just show me mm-hmm. so I was trying to figure it out by the diagrams on the back of the box which are not that helpful when you don't understand them already um, mm-hmm. so it was mostly me in the bathroom alone every month or so struggling and then eventually just giving up 
until I finally got it. And one, I feel like once you get it, you're like, oh, kind of like a kind of like a menstrual cup. Once you get it in, you're just like, oh, that's what it's supposed to be doing. And I was incredibly proud of that. Yeah. I also did a lot of ballet in high school, so it was an urgent need that I figure out how the hell to use tampons. Because mm-hmm. you can't really dance in a pad. It's very obvious. Everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing. It's so emba- <laughs> it's so embarrassing to have people know that you're on your period. And that's something I feel like I've gotten really, really lucky in my female friendships, especially in... Um, like we, we used to have a, a code for spot checks in the halls. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was very comforting. I was, I also spent most of my life being really bad about bleeding all over everything. Like, I feel like I was always that friend who like would have blood spot on her jeans or would go hook up with someone forgetting that it was almost over, but not quite over. <laughs> so... I have a lot, I have a lot of oh, terribly mortifying bloodstain stories. But, uh, well, that's one yeah. of the central points of uh, mm-hmm. the guide period is there will be blood. Mm-hmm. Like it's said a few times throughout. Um, yeah. Did she say that in her interview that that was almost the title yeah. of mm-hmm. the book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, what I really like about the guide period is how on just about every page it's so... It reminds the reader that through all of it, all of the um, different ways that people choose to um, navigate both puberty and or periods or any other kind of like grooming thing, like body thing, mm-hmm. like every page goes back to it's your choice yeah. Yeah. about what you choose. And if it feels right to you, that's what is right. And I, I, I wish I had this book. In, a, in the school that I was in, like, yeah. this, this is going to so much easier. I, I really think. love the emphasis on friendship, too, because, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one of the things that we talk about as a theme generally is the harm and threat of isolation and breaking that down, especially in adolescence. I think that's really important. That really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also definitely did have my mom throw me parties and have my friends be like, this is so weird. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> that did, didn't happen for this particular occasion. Um, but like, I remember when I was an adolescent, it was Scarletine, which um, I think is still around. It's a website for adolescent sex education. And I'm really excited that there's more more of that mm-hmm. kind of tone. Yeah. What a cool book. Thanks, Nama. Thank you, Nama. And thanks to all of the people who made that book happen. You know? Um, shall we wrap it up? Are we? I think we're finished. Yeah. Finished. Yeah. There is blood. There will be blood. <laughs> or is there blood? <laughs> there just is blood. There just is. There just is. Um, so thank you so much for joining us again on the Dresser Listeners. We are, uh, we're, we're so thrilled to have you. And, um, this show is produced by the voices you're hearing here. I'm Vanessa Carlisle. I'm Danny Cruz. I'm Lauren Kiley. Our music is by Lou Gomez. You can find past episodes of our show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts. 
please do the thing and rate and review and share it. It really helps us. Um, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, signal boosts, if you want to uh, let us know something that you really want us to do a podcast on or a question that you have that you want us to answer on the podcast, we're here for you on the dresser at gmail.com. Yeah, we are a podcast, so open up the Voice Memo app on your phone and send us a question or reach out to us that way. Yes, absolutely. You can also find us at Facebook and Twitter at OnTheDresser. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kylie. You can find me on the Twitter at It's Danny Cruz. Vanessa? And you can find me at V Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. Okay, all power to the people. All All pleasure pleasure to to the people. people. Good Good night night and good fuck.